Today on Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan, I'm speaking with Dr. Marco Pelosi, one of the top cosmetic gynecologists in the world. Marco is the co-founder of the International Society of Cosmetogynecology, which is a word that he coined himself and is truly one of the only men who knows women inside and out. Hi, and thanks for joining me on this episode of Sexually Woke with Dr. Susan. Today, I'm super excited to have a really special guest, Dr. Marco Pelosi III, there's two others apparently, and he is one of the world's most well-renowned cosmetic gynecologist. Um, So Marco's done some amazing things. I actually didn't know all this about you, but reading your bio is pretty astounding. Um, So Marco founded a group called the ISCG, which is the International Society of Cosmetogynecologists, which is a word that he made up, which is pretty impressive to have your own word. And uh, most of you know that I'm involved in cosmetic gynecology. And so uh, this is a really interesting topic, I think, for uh, those of us who are interested in uh, sexual wellness, because they all tie together. So Marco Let's just say he's done a shit ton of cosmetic gynecology and other types of cosmetic surgery. He's published tons of articles. He speaks all over the world. He's basically the bomb when it comes to this stuff. And he's been doing it even longer than me, which is hard to believe. So hi, Marco. Welcome to our show. Oh, hi, Susan. I want to thank you for having me on your show. You know, I know we connect every 10 years, like Haley's Comet or so. But um, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, getting down into the, uh, the issues and the topics that are uh, front and center in this field. Yeah, so, so I'll just cut to the chase. And the thing that comes up fairly often for me, because I work, I have sort of one foot in each camp, and I think it's okay to do that. Uh, but there's the camp of, um, you know, promoting female equality and uh, believing that women are perfect the way they are and wanting us to love ourselves as we are, which is so important. And then I'm also a cosmetic surgeon, so I'm actively involved in um, participating and helping women to change their bodies in ways that they choose. So this is an item of criticism that comes up, and you might hear it too. And this is actually how we met. Probably 10 or 12 years ago, I spoke at one of your meetings about this controversy. And so it's really still a live controversy about how we, how can we practice medicine and help women to feel good about themselves while we're also somewhat participating in this idea that we need to change things? Well, yeah, this is an issue that goes back over a hundred years. And cosmetic surgery, aesthetic surgery. Uh, that, that sort of stuff originally was the work in like the late 1800s of charlatans, snake oil salesmen, you know, just very unsavory people just trying to rip people off, making miraculous, miraculous um, claims. And it was the AMA that gave doctors political power by going to state medical societies and saying, you want to get rid of the charlatans and the snake oil salesmen? Give us a little bit of power to control these people. So for the first half of the 20th century, cosmetic surgery of any kind was sort of looked upon as uh, something lesser, something that doctors shouldn't be doing. It wasn't academic. It wasn't saving lives, quote unquote. Um, And then in the second half of the 20th century, 
birth control pills came out. People started having sex before they were married. The culture shifted. People said, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. And if I want to make myself look better, I'm going to make myself look better. In tandem with that, techniques got safer, got better that didn't exist that long ago. And, and so now there's a culture of people who say, why should I wither away and let my body fall apart without taking advantage of technology? When, when I take care of uh, myself in other ways, uh, you know, I go to the gym, I exercise, I eat the right things. Why should I just have to settle for not intervening and altering my appearance if it makes me feel better? Yeah, my money, so I, my body. Right, that's right. And I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, my uh, audience knows I'm very open that I've had cosmetic surgery. And I think I had a tummy tuck because I had twins and I'm a thin woman and I had this big flap of skin and it affected my life. And it actually... I would choose vacation spots and, and I would change what I was doing because I was worried about this. I wouldn't want to be on top when I was having sex because I think my tummy would hang. I mean, all of these things, it's like very um, frustrating. And sure, it's not life-threatening. There's starving people in Africa. We still want to think about that. But I think just recognizing that that is suffering. I mean, we're allowed to have our suffering. And if my flap of tummy is getting in the way of me having a free life, then do I have the right to change that if I want to? And what difference is there between a tummy tuck and a labiaplasty? But a lot of people draw a line there. Have you have you found that to be true? Where they've got a tummy tuck, but a labiaplasty, that's different. That's like genital mutilation or that's like, that's a different level. And so I, I get that quite often. And I just wonder if you do or if that's an issue that comes up for you. Well, I think it's it's a matter of who who are you talking to and who who is doing the criticizing. If you look at specialties where uh, cosmetic surgery has been established for decades, they're not whining about it. It's where cosmetic surgery is new to a specialty that the academics feel threatened by it and choose to to malign it and they choose to criticize it because. They see it as a completely new domain that, uh, in their minds, doesn't cure anything. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of resources. And we should just tell people, be happy the way you are. And if you're not happy the way you are, there must be something wrong with your brain. And you have to have a psychologist evaluate you just to, to show you that you're crazy and, and that uh, your, your request uh, shouldn't be taken seriously. Yeah. And that's a really so, dismissive, isn't it? Because I mean, I, I whiten my teeth, I color my hair. I mean, I shave my legs. Like what's the difference really? We're altering our bodies in numerous ways to help us to feel more confident and to be more comfortable in our own skins. And who, who gets to choose that really? It's your, you know, one of the basics of uh, medical ethics is autonomy, you know, so patients get to choose, uh, I think, and you probably agree. But then the counter argument to that is, uh, I've heard, well, they're not really free to choose because culture is telling them they have to look this way. So, I mean, it can get really complicated. But I mean, bottom line is, what's the difference? I mean, we all are altering our bodies in numerous ways on a daily basis. And cosmetic surgery is one, uh, one arm of that. 
the way I sure. say it. I mean, look, yeah. you, you can tattoo yourself from head to toe. Right. It's your skin. You know, if that's mm -hmm. what makes you happy, go for it. My opinion doesn't matter. It's not my skin. It's not me choosing it for myself. And just because I wouldn't do something doesn't mean that it's the wrong solution for, for someone else. So when you adopt this paternalistic attitude that there should be a gatekeeper who is uh, high and mighty, who has been ordained somehow by some undefined entity to make decisions on behalf of other people in a free society, you have a problem. And I think, uh, you know, the type of person that criticizes these things usually comes with an agenda. They're mm. trying to promote some kind of agenda against something. And, and they're picking this as a scapegoat, as a, a straw man, you know, and just attributing all of these horrible negative characteristics and just adding them on like baggage and saying a person who does this must also think this, this and that uh, when, when it's totally absurd. Right. The people that come to me are, are soccer moms, you know, that yeah. they just want something along the lines of uh, rejuvenating their body to feel better and more youthful. Yeah. And I, I agree. And my patients are the same. Uh, they're not um, they don't have body dysmorphic disorder. They're not under some unrealistic perception of the way their bodies will should look. They just they're like women like me who sought out plastic surgery because I had an annoying issue that was just a pain and it was affecting my life. And now I don't think about it anymore. And that's a really nice uh, addition to my life. I'm super glad that I did it. And so I, I don't, I don't think it's different. Um, so I, I'm interested in that controversy, but I think because we're in the field of women's health. And so there's this idea, which is very important that we want, we're promoting women's health. We, you know, we care about women. We care about women, uh, happiness. We care about women's equality. We care about all those things and we do, but I don't think those two things are, um, they can, you know, they can exist together. Uh, so I, I'm just interested in that because I, I do hear that sometimes. And when you ask like who's criticizing, you know, there's the camp, there's always a camp out there. And some of my listeners, I think uh, probably feel that way because I, you know, I, I, I'm in the sexual wellness space. And so this is, I'm super passionate about it. And there's an idea that, for example, a labiaplasty, which is a common surgery that you and I do, um, is in some way, I don't know, it's it's taking away from our sexuality. But I think you and I both know, and that I've been, you and I both been involved in big studies that show that that's not the case. Um, if there's any change in uh, sexuality after labiaplasty, it's positive because we have an increase in self confidence. Not because it changes the anatomy; it's just because it makes us feel better, right? Yeah. Now, there, there are some people with a uh, loud voice, but they're very few in number that, that are suffering from bad experiences with the complications of, of cosmetic procedures. And since they're making a loud noise, you shouldn't equate a loud noise with a large number of people suffering from, uh, from problems related to these things. And, and that just brings in, into, uh, into question the, the issue of training, because it's really not widespread. It's a very uh, niche uh, market, niche surgery, and very, very few real experts in the field. So one of the problems that comes up, and it comes up all the time, is a gynecologist who thinks one of these procedures is easy to do because the anatomy is small and they can put a clamp across this and that, that that constitutes the procedure. And, and then they go and they botch it. 
And then the society's point at the botch procedure from, from the doctor that was uh, untrained in it. And they say, you see what happens when you do a labiaplasty? You get this. And I always laugh and I criticize and I said, no, that's what you get when you do a surgery that you never trained in. Right. It could be and any surgery. As, yeah. Yeah. Me trying a heart transplant or a hip replacement. <laughs> right. I'm not trained in that. That's I would right. watch those instantly. Yeah. So just for, uh, this is really important for women to understand, I think. And I think perhaps they don't always understand this, that we're not trained to, there's, there's no formal training program other than those that were established by people like yourself. So Marco has a training program for physicians and several other, um, very few other experts have uh, training programs where gynecologists can learn to do this procedure safely. But I would say, I don't know, I probably did at least 50 of these surgeries before I was really comfortable and had seen, uh, you know, a variety of things that could happen. And I really knew how to handle anything that could come up. And so now, you know, having done it for 15 years, I'm confident that I can do as a a, a good a job as anybody. But I don't, um, we shouldn't be messing with things if we're not the best in the field. I mean, I, I want my sister and my mom and myself to go to the best, you know, and if we can't provide that, we shouldn't be doing it. And of course one has to learn, but you know, we just need to be trained. So I think patients need to understand that you, you don't want to just have your gynecologist do this, just like you wouldn't have a, a, you know, a chiropractor do your breast augmentation. I mean, you want to see someone who's really knows what they're doing. And a lot of people are getting into this. You shouldn't be doing it. Right. I mean, I'm sure you've do a lot of uh, work like I do in uh, correcting surgeries that weren't done right the first time. Yeah, it's it's a real shame when, when they uh, when they get botched and some of the stuff can't be fixed. I mean, you can make it look better, but it's it's almost like a, like a traumatic injury that has to be fixed and patched up with the remaining tissue. And, and sometimes they're actually in pain. So I mean, everybody says do your homework. But if you don't have a filter mechanism to screen out the good stuff from the bad stuff, you can go through the internet till your eyeballs pop out and all you're going to get is exhausted because you're like, I went through 10,000 pages of, of uh, different doctors. They all sound good because they're all talking the talk. How do I know who's good and who's not good? They don't know the criteria. They don't know what to look for. They don't know how to tell the quality. So how do you, so, how, how do you? navigate that if you're a lay person. Um, you know, I obviously you can go to your website or my website or some of our colleagues and you can you can gather some data that would make you pretty confident yeah, that this person well. has done this a lot before. But a lot of people, you can spend a lot of money on social media and make things look very nice and get pictures from other people and all the things that we know people do. But what what advice would you give to someone who is trying to find a really good surgeon. This is a big decision, whether it's a tummy tuck, a liposuction, labiaplasty, you know, it's a huge decision. Well, I, I, I would start with before and after photos. So look for a doctor with a lot of before and after photos that you like the results and look for the patients that sort of look like you look before the procedure. So that gives you the best, the best possible idea of what you would look like in the hands of that particular doctor. And I always tell my patients, I always tell other doctors, surgery isn't done by diplomas on the wall. I got diplomas up and down 
my sleeve, but there's not one single diploma that I have that will tell you whether I'm any good at doing anything other than getting diplomas. So <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, you can impress people with credentials, but when, uh, when it's time to do one of these procedures, you got to see the results first. And if they can't produce the results and all they can tell you is they went to every Ivy League program and graduated, you know, top of the class, that doesn't mean that they can do a good job because they haven't shown you the proof of the pudding. Well, what makes a good surgeon? I, I So I'm going to ask you that question. Then I, I'm thinking about myself. I actually grew up sewing. You know, my mom taught me how to sew. I grew up, I've been sewing since I was a kid. Like, so sewing things is just part of my nature. I can sew clothes, I can knit. And, you know, so that was always something that I knew I was, I had a talent in. Um, and, you know, it, it requires more than that. There's an, there's an, there's an art to it. There's, you know, you've got to have an eye for it and all of these things. And, um, and then there's the compassion aspect is, you know, the bedside manner. There's so many things, but what, um, what do you think makes a good surgeon? What's the difference between the people who screw it up and the people who do a good job? Well, you got to go back to, to the beginning of the specialty. The people that, that took it on uh, were very confident in, in their, in their surgical skills. And they had an aesthetic eye. So, you know, just like uh, when you have a sculptor who starts out or she starts out with a big stone and they turn it into something beautiful, they know what to chip away and what to leave behind sort of intuitively. Uh, there, there is a learning process. There is an observational process of watching people. But uh, you can take the world's best technician and if they lack an aesthetic eye, um, They'll be able to do the job without a surgical complication, but they won't be able necessarily to make it look pretty because it's, it's a lot about, you know, just picking and choosing how much to leave behind, how much to take, um, how to balance it with, with the surroundings. And I think you can teach that to, to a certain degree, but uh, depending on where you are in the learning process and how much case volume you have access to, you, you just may not have enough experience to develop uh, that eye or develop those skills to a level where, where it, it's competent uh, to the standards of the current era. Yeah, now, it really, it really it, isn't. There's an, there really is an art aspect to it, obviously, yeah. because you're, you know, I, I like that um, analogy with sculpture, taking something and, and creating something else that is more aesthetically appealing to the patient. Um, so I, you know, you do a lot of different cosmetic surgeries. I know your background was initially in gynecology and I'm a gynecologist. And so I, I don't do all of the procedures that you do, but um, this is the show Sexually Woke. And so we're talking about sex. And so, you know, just focusing on the procedures that involve the genital area. So that would be mostly, you know, labiaplasty and vaginoplasty. Um, what, what issues do women present to you with who would request a vaginoplasty? And what's your experience about that procedure as far as it affecting our sexual function? Well, I get two groups of women. I get people who know what a vaginoplasty is and they want to get the tighter vagina. They've been doing a little research on it. And for whatever reason, their research is on the right track with reality about what these procedures can do. And, uh, you know, they find me because I'm easy to find. And um, then there's the other group patients who are a little confused and uh, they have 
gynecologic issues related to pelvic organ prolapse, they just didn't know what it was called. And they just came in through the, uh, the side door that says uh, vaginoplasty fixes things that are loose. And in their mind, loose means hanging out. So they, they show up. And I evaluate and treat those patients and manage them like regular gynecologic patients and just tell them, listen, you know, what you really meant was you have a gynecologic issue called this. This is what it really is. And let's work on that and let's get that insurance card out and let's do it uh, through uh, the conventional uh, channels. But uh, the other group clearly wants to improve sexual function at the level of, uh, of laxity being corrected. And wh what I find is that if you have a, a lax pelvic floor, you can kegel your brains out and the muscles will never come together. They, they'll tighten, but they won't come together. Like the strings on a guitar, you, you can tighten those things all day long. They're never going to come together because they're not aligned in a way that allows them to come together. But uh, when you repair them, now they're not in parallel. They're like a V. And when you tighten the V, the bottom of the V, which is towards the outside of the vagina, lifts the penis right into the G-spot. So that's always a good thing. And uh, that's something that you can generate with these procedures. You can generate kegels at work. So some of the problems that are normally fixed by kegels when the muscles are in good shape come back to life with, uh, with these operations. Yeah, so um, childbirth you know, everyone who's had a vaginal delivery, you know, putting a baby's head through the vagina is, is damages the muscles of the pelvic floor. There's, there's no way around it. And I, I love the way you mentioned that. Cause I talk about this too. The, uh, pelvic physical therapy is, is great and we should do that. And yes, do, do kegels and that's wonderful. But if you actually have a, a, a hernia or a gap and your muscles are not connected, it's really impossible to create any friction or force. And so, you know, when we have a hernia and um, some uh, of the listeners might know in medical terms, what Marco was talking about, when you get your insurance card out, you can have medical issues like stress incontinence and what's called a rectocele, where the rectum's pooching up into the vagina and the uterus could be falling down. And these are medical problems. So there's the, that category. And then there's the people that don't have that and just want a tighter vagina. But Basically, the endpoint of either type of surgery is similar, right? I mean, we, when I correct erectocele and you know, the medical issues, stress incontinence and all those things, one of the pleasant side effects is that your vagina is tighter. And then you have more friction with intercourse and all the things you mentioned. So do you agree with that idea that basically the endpoint is similar, even though you're coming in with a different complaint? So it might be a medical complaint or it might be a purely wanting a tighter vagina complaint, but the- and Well, no, I'll put it this way. You know, the pelvic floor is the support system for the vaginoplasty um, muscular operation. So vaginoplasty is mostly focused on muscles being tightened surgically. And the pelvic floor reconstructions are more about uh, the framing and the support structures of the vagina, uh, not necessarily so much on the muscle. So if somebody comes to me for, for a rectocele repair, and they're not complaining about uh, that they want a tighter vagina for sex. We'll talk about it. And if it's something they want, I will throw in a muscle repair. But if they're coming in specifically for erectocele repair, I'm not going to just, without their consent, just go off and start tightening everything like, like a wild man. Uh, it might not be something they want. 
Yeah. And, so, uh, I mean, so, I think that's a good point that this is customizable somewhat. I mean, we can make the vagina so tight that you can't put one finger in there, but that wouldn't be wise. And so one of the things that can happen with these surgeries, again, if they're not done correctly, one of the most um, unpleasant outcomes is making it too tight. And then it's painful for to have intercourse. So it's you know, really important to, it's like, I talk about all day with hormones. It's like soup. You don't want too much salt in your soup and you don't want too little. It's got to be just right. Cause you know, we're not, our may, our primary goal as surgeons or physicians is to not do harm. We don't want to take a problem, make it worse. So if I'm tightening someone's vagina and they end up with chronic pain, that is a, a problem. So yeah, it's customizable. So this is like really important to communicate. If you're thinking about doing something like this with your surgeon, exactly what it is that you want the outcome to be. Right. I mean, I can, yes. Yeah, you can fix a rectocele, and you can also make your vagina tighter, and there's all these things that we can do. But um, the, you know, absolutely, we don't want it to be too tight. So you mentioned that. So if we've got these muscles pulled back together in a pre-childbirth state, uh, uh, you know, of course we've aged. We can't make ourselves perfectly like we were when we were 18, but somewhat uh, uh, repairing the damage that was done by childbirth. Uh, what's your experience with uh, patient outcomes as far as their experience with sex? Because like, I, I always come back to sex. That's my favorite topic. It does it really make sex better? You said it elevates uh, the penis towards the G-spot. That sounds fun. Um, friction is great. What's, what's the feedback that you hear? Well, I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll examine my patients beforehand in the consultation, and I will gauge the quality of the muscle. If you have good muscles before the surgery, you're going to have the best possible outcome from the surgery because we're we're taking pristine tissues and putting them in the right places, and they're going to function ideally. They're going to have the right tone. They're going to have the the right contractility and everything else that goes into the the function of of the muscular uh, elements. If you come in with paralyzed muscle tissue, asymmetrical damage of valse levator tissue, muscle tissue. Uh, You know, they say, you know, garbage in, garbage out. You can only do so much with damaged tissues. I can't turn somebody's destroyed muscles into great muscles just by bringing them together. I can make that vagina tighter and she'll be tighter relative to how she started, but she's not going to experience the uh, the mind-blowing, you know, top-of-the-line uh, testimonial-style result coming in with, with very poor native tissue. So I always have the, uh, the reality check uh, expectation uh, discussion with people. And I tell them, if you're expecting to have, you know, a 10 out of 10 result, you got to start out with high-quality tissue to begin with. You know, yeah. we're good at stitching, but we have nothing to rejuvenate those muscles right now. Stem cells, all that stuff, you know, it, it doesn't do it. Well, it's so and important. Coming- the, this, this expectation management, I think, is really key. And I have found, and you probably have too, that um, sometimes that's not managed well. Um, when patients go into surgery with unrealistic expectations and the surgeon hasn't um, managed that situation, then we're going to have a unsatisfied patient. Because you're right. I mean, sometimes you and I have been in surgeries where you're sort of sewing Swiss cheese together. There's just nothing there that's going to hold long-term. And you're right. We can't create that when it's not there. Um, you know, certainly using hormones beforehand and having patients do some 
you know, pelvic physical therapy beforehand and whatever we can do to improve the quality of the muscles, great. But your expectation management is really huge. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. Sure. I mean, that, that being said, it's, it's a very rewarding operation. The majority of my patients are as tight as they want to be. And um, the, on, the only issues I have with these operations is they get to be a little tricky if the patient is in the menopause. And, and the reason for that is because the vagina is less elastic. So I have to be a little more careful in the menopausal patient to not tighten them the same degree that I do in a premenopausal patient because they won't expand with sex as much. So I have to back off a little bit. So when somebody is like, you know, 60 tells me they want the tightest vagina in the world, I tell them, we can't do that. Well, that's not something you're going you're gonna to be happy about. And I explain it to them and I show them, listen, it's not going to stretch. So if, if we make it super tight, you're going to have problems that are going to be very uh, uncomfortable to manage. Yeah. I mean, pain, uh, pain with sex is something that uh, you and I both work on to alleviate. So doing a surgery that makes it worse is, is absolutely not in anybody's best interest. So that's, again, just going back to this idea of being really careful about choosing a surgeon and you can hear, I, I hope I can, and what Marco's saying that, you know, we we're really careful. Like this isn't something you, um, just jump in and do without adequate training because the, the outcome, if it's bad, uh, from a, what we call down here a vaginoplasty, I like this vaginoplasty they have up north. Um, I still call it vaginoplasty. But um, the, the, the outcome of a poorly done vaginoplasty can be uh, just catastrophic for life. I mean, and I've seen cases before, I'm sure you have too, where uh, it wasn't done correctly and the patient has chronic pain or uh, too tight and we've got to do a second surgery to try to correct that and just uh, you know, really becomes a disaster for the patient and, and the relationship. And when the original goal was to improve sexual function, you know, we've just gone and made things a hundred times worse. We don't want to do that. So Marco's being quiet because he's agreeing with me. So he just agrees with everything that I say. We're, it's wonderful. We're on the same side. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're preaching to each other. Yeah, but this is preaching good because people choir. need to hear this stuff. So, so I'm, so coming, you know, I always have to revert to talking about sex. Like in my worldview, cosmetic surgery really is about sexuality. I mean, why is it that we want to look beautiful? I mean, it's, there's this human nature. We want to be attractive to others. And, um, you know, there's an idea that we're doing it for ourselves, and that's nice. Like, I like the way I look in the mirror now, and that's really nice. But, you know, would I do that if I wasn't um, a relational being? Probably not because, you know, we are relational beings. So this this whole, like, there is a lot about sexuality in cosmetic surgery, especially when it's in the genital area, right? And one of the things that I wonder, just being, um, I don't know, a self-proclaimed expert in women's sexuality, having just worked in this field for so long, is that I, I don't know if most cosmetic surgeons really get into that at all with patients, or, or should we talk about that more? I mean, um, no, why we, we should, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because we don't know why that patient is really there. And all of this desire to do something 
has to have a, a root cause that there's something going on that is making this person seek out the help. And you have to peel back the superficial layers to get to the real reasons of, of why they are actually there. And, uh, you know, for instance, you know, the patient that says, I want a vaginoplasty, vaginoplasty, as you say it. And yeah, we say, we say it correctly down here. Yeah. Well, yeah, we can, we can talk about that for an hour. <laughs> well, it is a vagina. Uh, so maybe I should say vaginoplasty. That makes sense. Well, well yeah, my marketing people told me to use that uh, pronunciation. Yeah. I used to talk vaginoplasty uh, years ago. I might, um, I might change my mind. Thank you. I'm, I'm not always right, it turns out. I'm going to have to think about saying vaginoplasty. Try it. Try it for a week and see how you like I've, it. I'm going to do it. See what kind of response you get. Um, so what we were saying was, I lost my train of thought. About sex, about, about doctors talking about this being related to sex. Like the reason why if yeah. someone comes in, they want the surgery. What is really underneath their desire to have this done? You know, and yeah, and sometimes, sometimes, for instance, the, the, the previous partner left them and they told them it was about the sex. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it left them like emotionally screwed up, shattered, whatever you want to call it. And now they think that it's the, the loose vagina that is the centerpiece of, of her uh, current situation and why she's alone, thinking that if the vagina is tighter, the world is going to come to her. Um, so that's something where you got to sit down and say, listen, it's not all about the vagina. However, if you feel so un unconfident and insecure, uh, knowing that uh, somebody thinks your vagina is loose, um, you know, making it tighter is never going to get that person back. Not that you want them back in the first place, but it'll give you a confidence boost. And then you can move on from, from that issue uh, and, and, and move forward with your life. So if, if that's what it takes, I, I see that no different as, uh, you know, a nose job, the boob job, the tummy tuck, you know, fixing something that was uh, something that you thought was, was a reason for yourself to be... Uh, lacking in confidence. Yeah. And, and, and that also brings up that I've seen, I can't even count how many patients who had this uh, thought delivered to them by another person, you know, so a very uh, unskillful man at some point said something to, to her that gave her the idea that something was wrong with her vagina. And she's carried this deep, dark secret for goodness knows how long. And she finally musters the courage to come into the office and, and, and talk to me about it. And I do her exam and I mean, her vagina is great. And, and there's really not much I can improve. And, and just, I've had this experience many times where I'm like, you know, you can have this surgery if you want to, it's your choice, but honestly, your vagina is amazing. And I, I, there's whatever he said is just, uh, un incorrect and untrue. And, um, who knows why that happened, uh, but you don't need the surgery, in my opinion, and so she'll leave very happy. And so that's often an outcome too. So I think we have to be prepared to to not do every single surgery that walks in the door, um, because sometimes the reason is a an idea that is a um, a little bit delusional because it was put there by a person who was trying to hurt them or whatever. I mean, all of these things can get quite complicated. And unless the surgeons were willing to have these deeper conversations, then perhaps traditional surgeons are known to have, you know, we're not going to get the real story and we could even do harm. 
Well, the, the other thing is that the patient's uh, list of expectations might be coming from, from misinformation. You know, they, they, they may think, they might be asking for a vaginoplasty when their problem is urinary incontinence. Right. And you know it's not gonna fix it. It might, but it's not guaranteed to do anything for it. And they didn't wanna express it because maybe they just don't know the lingo. Yeah, that's so, that's right. So, uh, Ryan, there's a lot of uh, digging that we have to do. Like, we don't, you know, and I'm speaking as a woman, gynecologists in general, with few exceptions, like people like Marco, don't know much about this. We're not taught about this in uh, regular residency training. It's not part of an average gynecologist's uh, repertoire, so to speak. We don't know how to talk about sex. We don't know how to do these surgeries. So we don't know. I mean, the average patient, a layperson, absolutely doesn't know, like has no idea of even the anatomy. I mean, most patients are not taught even the difference between the labia minora and the majora and the anatomy of the clitoris and just things that we don't get taught. I mean, where do we learn these things? Well, yeah, the other the other problem in, in regular gynecologic practice is that the doctor is on the clock. Yeah. And how can you possibly get into a meaningful conversation about sex in five to 10 minutes when you're doing 10 other things and you got to move on through like 30 people for, for the day? So the, the environment that lends itself well to this would be a longer visit. And unfortunately, that is something which is outside the, uh, the list of services that most insurance companies provide. Because if, if I took half hour to an hour on every patient, um, you know, and it was just strict gynecology, I wouldn't be in practice very long because I wouldn't be able to keep the lights on. So the way that it's structured now, it's really not patient friendly for, for long conversations to, to tease out these issues. So that, that's where it, it's a boutique market where, where you have the environment to be able to do these things. I know that, that's a big uh, chunk of your practice right now. Yeah, and uh, which is why I left that traditional practice, and many of us do, because it's uh, I found it quite frustrating, or to say the least, to not have time to really dig down into what's really going on, and was I really felt like I was uh, just treating patients on a very superficial level, and not not being able to have the time to get to that understanding. And so, yes, you you know, if you're in an environment where you only have ten minutes. I don't think you can evaluate a patient adequately for cosmetic surgery or really anything <laughs> because you, you don't really have time to figure out why they're even there or what their motivations are. And so in that respect, I think, you know, obviously I'm biased because I'm in this group, but people doing this type of work really need to be in an environment that's, like you said, a boutique environment where they have time. And it might take an hour to, to do a pre-op visit for a, a patient who's considering one of these procedures because the, it the motivations are so complex and like sexuality for women is really complicated. It's not like a push this button and it works situation. There's a ton of different things going on. Right. Correct. Correct. You know, there's a, it's a multidimensional problem. You know, sex is not just an act. It's not just anatomy. It's, it's everything all mushed together. It's a past, the present, the expectation of the future. It's, it's the big mishmash of uh, all of these elements uh, coming together. And yeah, the fourth dimension of time, <laughs> these, 
shifting and changing all the time in the same person. So what, what you get the first time you meet them might be different from the second or third time. Yeah, so, and you know, in as much as our uh, sexual function is affected by a lot of things, and one of them is anatomic, so we can address that with surgery. And then there's all the other things. There's hormones, and there's, like, relational connectedness, and there's, uh, you know, conditioning from prior relationships and all these multitudes of things. Um, you know, with surgery, we're just addressing the anatomy. Uh, but as surgeons, you know, don't, do you think we have a responsibility to address those other things as well? Or is it just like, well, I'll, I, I can make your vagina tighter and then go see the sex therapist because I don't really do that, you know? You know, you can, you can organize your practice however you like. There's more than one uh, model, but somebody has to sit down and discuss these things. Maybe, yeah. you know, in, in a certain environment, you have a doctor who, for whatever reason, doesn't speak the language of the patient. So he or she is functioning as a technician and somebody else is having the discussion. But the discussion has to be had. Uh, think of it more of like a team approach, like a bariatric uh, surgical practice where you have the counselor, the dietitian, uh, you know, the focus groups with people that have been through it. it. It's a team approach. So you can do it as a team approach or you can do it as the boutique like, like you do, like, like I do, where it's all in, within uh, the expertise of a single entity. But uh, I mean, there, there are multiple ways to do it, but I, I think all of it has to be addressed for, for optimal outcomes and uh, ultimately for, for what's best for, for what the patient might be looking for. Yeah, and I totally agree. Um, there's, you know, going back to these, um, I don't know, naysayers or people that think this is just a bad idea and, and, and we shouldn't be doing this. Um, and our, our opinion, I think, would I'd be accurate to say you probably agree that it's a patient's right to choose what she wants to do. Um, and obviously with appropriate consent and all of those things that, that are important. But um, what myths do you see that are still out there that you could debunk about cosmetic surgery, especially genital plastic surgery? Oh, the number one is that uh, if, if the anatomy falls within the normal range of shape and size, uh, the, the, and nothing should be done. And that's the most ridiculous statement in the world. And I always, I always criticize the people who say these things. And, and I point out the fact that uh, every single circumcision they ever did on every newborn was done on normal anatomy. Every tubal ligation they ever did was done on normal anatomy. Every appendix they took prophylactically, normal anatomy. Gallbladder, normal anatomy. Abortion, normal anatomy. So when, when you add up the list of things that we've done in the name of normal anatomy, uh, putting labiaplasty out there as this, uh, you know, forbidden stepchild is, is, is ridiculous, hypocritical, and uh, it lacks any basis in, in common sense. Yeah, and I so love that. I love that analogy with with um, neonatal circumcision. Actually, and it was part of my talk when I spoke years ago at one of your meetings. That um, I just found that such a disconnect because we're we're uh, you know more than eighty five percent of American newborn males have skin removed from their penis without their consent, um, often without even anesthesia. And it's purely cosmetic. The American Academy of Pediatrics says it's not does not have any health benefit whatsoever, but yet we all do it, and we think that's fine. And so, because we like the way it looks better, it's just the way we like it to look this certain way. So we're going to do it, and we even do it to babies, and they're not 
giving consent. I mean, so that's like so much worse, <laughs> but we do it like it's nothing. And so I, I talk to people who think that's fine and they got circumcised and they circumcised their son, yet, uh, you know, changing the shape of the labia minora to, to meet the patient's uh, wishes with her own consent as an adult is somehow taboo. It's just doesn't make any sense to me. No, it, it never did. Uh, and, you know, when, when, when you peel back and you start arguing and making these arguments to, to the academics who are against it, <laughs> you, they usually start thinking the other way. They say, you know what, it makes, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. But, uh, and then they point, well, what about the botch case? It's just lack of training. You well, know, there's always a, a circle without always any a training. Case. Yeah, there's plenty of botch yeah, circumcisions. Circ. <laughs> yeah. how, how would you like somebody who's never done a circ to do a circ on your newborn baby? Yeah. So would that be something that makes you feel comfortable? Right. Yeah. And yeah. the um, I, I use this uh, language a lot in my office regarding hormones and you know everything that there's there's normal and there's optimal. So so yeah. I mean, what does normal even mean? I mean, if normal is sort of tenth uh, to ninetieth percentile or one standard deviation from whatever it is you think normal is it's not always optimal. So, if, you know, if a patient, ha, you know, if her nose is not the way she likes it and it makes her insecure, or if she has gray hair and she'd rather it be a different color, it's not optimal for her. And yes, it's normal to have gray hair when you're 50, but maybe for you, that's not optimal. So I just, I like that language that's really um, helped me to figure out what I believe about this stuff. Because, you know, if your labia are not optimal for you, and it's, you want to change it. Like, why is all the fuss about it? Um, and, you know, if it improves your your confidence and that makes you uh, show up more fully in your sexual experience with your partner because you feel confident being naked with the lights on or whatever, and it doesn't get pulled when you're having intercourse, and that is a nice thing. Isn't that something we should be offering women, like the ability to have that freedom and not take it away from them and say, you can't do this? I mean, I, I just think that's the opposite of feminism, like telling women they can't do something. It's very paternalistic, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the criticism also, also relates uh, to the, they, they, they say that uh, the only reason there's a demand for these procedures is because of the media attention. But that's, that's even more absurd because I have a lot of patients who tell me, I didn't know you could fix these problems. And now that I know that you can, I want them fixed because it would definitely improve the quality of my life. So let's say you didn't know that a car existed and you were walking to your office every single day. You're like, wow, this is really hard when it rains and it snows. It's really a pain. And then somebody says, well, we have a car. I said, what's that? So you can just hop in and you'll be there in five minutes. I said, well, I didn't know a car existed, but now that I know that a car exists, I want one. It's <laughs> Sounds pretty good. The quality of my life. Yeah, and it is a, it is a it's a quality of life decision. So if you have, you know, if you're listening and, and your labia are whatever shape or size, and you're happy with them, and it doesn't bother you, that's fantastic. Like, I mean, nobody's ever going to say you should look a certain way, and I've been accused of that, and it's just not true. I never tell anyone they should look a certain way. This is something that. Uh, if you present to me and you say that you'd prefer it to look a certain way, I have the skills to help you to achieve that. But yeah, the, you can look however you want to. That would be like me telling you, you need a, a breast enlargement. Uh, that would be absurd. You don't need a breast enlargement, but if you want one, 
we know how to do that. Um, and you can do it, do it safely. And so I think there's just a lot of, uh, I don't know why people get so engaged in this stuff. It's like the, you know, the, the anti-vaccinator people and the people that just think epidurals are terrible. And they, for whatever reason, there's just so much emotion behind these arguments sometimes that, um, who knows where that comes from, but, uh, yeah, I just would like to lighten up around that a little bit and just do what you want. It's your body and don't let anyone tell you what to do with your body. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's yours. If you want to exercise, you know, and somebody doesn't go ahead, do what, what makes you happy. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, that being said, like we, you know, we want to be careful that you're, um, well-informed, you're seeing a, a very skilled surgeon, you've done your research, you, you know, you've had expectations managed and all of those things. And, um, so if that is something that you're considering, um, having genital plastic surgery, you know, labiaplasty, vaginoplasty, I'm going to learn to say that. Um, nice word. <laughs> what else do you do down there, by the way? Well, I, I do hymenoplasty. Oh yeah. I do Mm-hmm. Uh, now that, you know, that do, that's an interesting we're going to run out of time but I do want to talk about that for a second because that there's a lot of I don't I I do that too sometimes but I, I always feel a little weird about it I'll tell you the truth and so for people listening putting you know making the hymen look like you did not have not had sex before uh, I always I've done it and I feel a little weird about it. Now, there's sometimes it's a safety issue for the patient if she's from certain cultures where um, if she doesn't bleed with her wedding night, she could be in physical danger. I mean, so there are settings where it's actually quite important that, you know, the patient presents herself on her wedding night as a virgin. But it is a bit of a slippery slope, don't you think? It's, it's dishonest. Oh, yeah, but- like it's a, I don't know, it's a bit of. I don't know. I I struggle with that one. I'll tell you the right. truth. Well, a nose job is dishonest. So you'll have a baby with a big nose and you had a pretty nose. Where did that come from? Uh, you know, a, a woman with uh, breast implants, that's deceptive. So it's all how you look at it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's body. But if you're in a culture where not having uh, the, the perception of an intact hymen is going to make you an outcast, you have two choices. You can change the culture and be a martyr. Or you can just do something for yourself and say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this martyr thing. I, I'm not the, uh, you know, I'm not the one who's going to revolutionize my culture. And I might, <laughs> I might get injured or, or outcast. And I can tell you right away that if I don't do it, there's going to be a major change in my life for the negative. And if I do it, it's probably going to be okay. And that's how I want to fly. So I would tell the, the critics Spend a day, a week, a month, a year in the shoes of that person. And then you tell me if you have a right to push them to be a martyr. Yeah. No, I mean, I like the way you put that because it's, I mean, no one's going to come. I I don't, I haven't ever had a patient present to me wanting to have their hymen uh, restored who wasn't in some type of fear about what might happen if she didn't. I mean, that's not something you're going to ask for. I mean, it doesn't change anything cosmetically. Nobody would notice. It's a, it's a, it's a very culturally driven request. So yeah. Um, so that's a thing. And then what, what else? So you can, what about plumping the labia majora? That's the thing a lot of women request because uh, as we get older, we lose fat out of that outer labia and it can look sort of loose and relaxed. I'm 53. I'm thin. I have that. 
What what do you what do you do about that these days? Well, we we use fat injections, and uh, we add uh, things to the fat to try to enhance the fat survival. You see, fat is living tissue, and when you transplant the living tissue, you lose about half. So what you start with, you're going to lose about half. So uh, I put in about a thumb's worth into each labia typically, and I counsel my patients that that thumb's worth is going to turn into a pinky's worth over a few months. And either they're going to want to come back for a little more or just expect uh, to, to have a little less than you started with. But uh, there are things like platelet-rich plasma, uh, nanofat, which is basically just crushed up fat cells with the growth factors um, acting like a fertilizer to try to enhance the viability of the tissues. And the typical patient is sort of looks like you. They're lean, athletic, and over 40. And so they've lost the body fat, they've lost facial fat, and some of these areas don't look so uh, so youthful when you lose the fat. And, and those are prime areas for, uh, for fat transfer, whether it's the hands, the face, and, and, and the labia. And frequently it's the, same, it's the same person because they're having all issues like this uh, in, in all of these areas. So we do one big session and we take care of it all uh, as, a, as a total rejuvenation with, with fat, and it makes them pretty happy. Yeah, luckily, um, those of us who are around my age, we know that we do lose fat from these places, but we actually gain it in other places. So Marco can go get it from the places you don't want it and put it back in the places that you do want it. So that sounds fun. And um, so, you know, we're doing stuff with platelet-rich plasma and these other nano things, you know, sounds, what's the, what's the next frontier for cosmetic gynecology? Like what's stem, stem cells? cells. Right now, stem cells uh, are, uh, you know, you can isolate the stem cells and you can play around with them. And uh, there have been applications in, in all fields of, of medicine and surgery where they're doing good things with stem cells. But in the cosmetic space, we're still scratching our heads and trying to think, you know, you know how can we improve results using just plain old stem cells? And everybody's trying different things. So everybody's got a different recipe. Everybody's got a different process for getting stem cells. Everybody's stem cells are different. So there's so many different things going on that that we're in this big experiment right now. There's nothing dangerous about the experiment, but it's just the uh, the ability to predict what's going to happen with a specific application is sort of uh, under investigation right now. And... uh, Right now, it's, it's sort of a pricey, it's a pricey intervention. So if you want to get into uh, stem cell therapy for specific things, uh, it, it can get pretty pricey. But uh, if you're looking at some of the, the other uh, less uh, involved uh, things like platelet-rich plasma or, or nanofat, they tend to be very reasonably priced for, for most people. Yeah, so just, I know, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. I think this is um, so exciting, I guess, being a woman in the field of uh, female sexual medicine and cosmetic, um, I love your word, cosmetogynecology. Marco invented that word. Cosmetic gynecology is what I would call it, but I think I'll add the O. Um, That we're finally, you know, over the past five or 10 years, having some attention paid to female sexuality when it's been a really male-dominated field and like bajillions of dollars have been spent on uh, male uh, sexual function. And um, so it's a really exciting time. And I am so thrilled to be involved in this uh, work so that we can 
you know, we're going to live to be a hundred and, uh, you know, having a, a vibrant sex life is, is an important part of who we are. And that's what this podcast is about. That's what I write about. And I just, I want, I guess my goal, and I'm so glad you were here to open this discussion so that people can just be a little more open-minded about these things being an option. And yeah, in many cases, not all, these are other options that you might consider, um, you know, to improve your self-confidence and to improve your sexual experience. And that, that is a, um, a frequent outcome from these surgeries if done in the correct hands. So where can, where can we find you, Marco? If you look at Marco Pelosi, you'll find him online because he's all over the place. Um, he also has a podcast, the top cosmetic gynecologists, which is cool. And you're got- in, um, you're on the East coast. If people want to come visit you. I'm 10 minutes from Newark airport, 10 minutes from wall street, uh, five minutes from Hoboken. And I speak English, Spanish, French, and a little bit of Italian. Oh, so you, he's got it all covered. And so um, if that's not close for you, and then I'm down here in Houston, like we've got, got it all covered. So um, Marco, thank you so much. I know you, you're you a busy, busy man and uh, giving us an hour of your time. We really appreciate uh, you're helping women. And I am so appreciative that you're helping women's sexual function. And uh, I don't invite men to talk very much, but we, you know, you're one of the guys that actually understands women. And so we appreciate you. Men are, men are good for some things. Well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad I have some use to you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you made the cut and, uh, yeah, well, uh, fantastic. I love the work you've been doing. I love your book. I like your attitude. I, I think that, uh, more, more people need to hear about what, what you have to say. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon in, in a couple of months down in uh, in Florida. Yeah, Marco has a conference, and uh, we have not. Uh, well, no, hum- nobody has had any in-person human meetings this past year. So, what an exciting idea to have humans get together in the same room. That's going to be a fun thing. So. Thank goodness the world's turning back to normal. But thank you so much for being here. Um, we're going to put all your contact information in the um, link below here so that we can find you and pe- uh, patients can reach out to you and um, uh, benefit from your expertise. And uh, really enjoyed talking to you. I'll see you soon. Thanks for being here. Sure. Sure. Well, thanks. And I think that the easiest way to reach me is drmarcopelosi.com. Easy. Easy peasy. Marcopelosi.com. Thanks, Marco. I'll see you soon. Take care. All right. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.